I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Topics included promotion and retention of students, special education, systematized grading, and the findings of an investigation of the crisis inside the Boston Student Advisory Council. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Jill, I, I think we should start off by playing a quote right off the bat here. I think this quote from school committee member Hardin Coleman provides a really good basis for our summary of last night's meeting. As you know, I think the board's role is strategic planning, uh, financing, overseeing the large picture. I don't think there are many CEOs of billion dollar operations who have their hands as tightly engaged in the range of detail, administrative details that you reported to us tonight. And he went on to say, CEO, my boss, President Brown, the BBU's um, um, budget is the same size as BPS, billion dollars. When he gives his regular report to the community and the superintendents, he is not touching the details you are. And so to have a, chief system, a system of chiefs that can take some of that on so you can move forward is great. So Jill, you know, essentially what Dr. Coleman is saying, I think, is that the superintendent is really good at getting into the weeds of issues confronted by the district. Um, and the school committee would like to see her build a team that could go deep on all of these topics, um, that the strategies are directionally correct, but the district will not get very far in implementing these strategies without the right set of leaders under her, you know, who are the experts in their field, um, to ensure that good things happen across the district in all categories, where they're currently falling down and consistently criticized. And so, you know, the net net chill here is the superintendent has a good vision. She's trying to push forward a, a vision of equity and excellence for our students in Boston Public Schools. And really where we get caught up in is the superintendent is managing all the details rather than um, a senior leadership team. Right. It's a, it's a good point. So the superintendent um, opened the meeting with a report where she covered several items, including something that ended up in the news this week, the retention plan for students of all grade levels, given teacher and family worries about disrupted learning. As we approach the end of this year, we are also working with our families to discuss promotion and retention of students. This has been a challenging year, and I wanna be clear that it is always a parent's choice to retain their student. We understand that the period of extended hybrid or remote learning presents many challenges for our students and families. Last week, we clarified to school leaders that students should not be retained in kindergarten. We also outlined parameters for school leaders and teachers that require them to provide interventions, communicate regularly with parents as to the progress of their child's success and provide evidence of the if the child is recommended to be retained. Educators and school leaders will continue working to ensure all students are prepared for their next school year and will discuss potential retention of students with their parents and their caregivers. Retention must be grounded in evidence that the student is unable to demonstrate an ability to meet or exceed the essential standards. The National Association of School Psychologists say that holding a child back is unlikely to address the problem a child is facing, but also promoting a child without additional support or intervention is not likely to be an effective solution either.
On the whole, studies have shown that children who are retained do not do better over time, and this is especially true of older students. We are committed to supporting all of our students in every way as we come out of this pandemic stronger, and we will continue working with parents to make the right choice for their child with their teacher and their school leaders. Okay, Jill. So I think what we just heard was the superintendent said that parents would get to choose about if, if, if they thought their child should be retained. Right. That retention doesn't work and also moving students along in their education without giving them additional supports also doesn't work. Right. And that retaining older students um, is even worse than retaining younger students, but there would be, there's a policy of no retention in kindergarten. Right. Did you, did you hear the same thing? So I heard all of that, but help me understand, is that good? Is that bad? I mean, it, cause it seemed like that nothing is good. And, um, right. and, right. and for sure, we're not going to retain kindergartners. It, what, so. Let's be clear, like retaining students, who are in older grades has been shown to not work very well. In fact, it's social emotionally detrimental to the students. It makes them feel like they're with a different peer group that they bonded with this other peer group and now they're with a new peer group and it makes them feel left behind. And really the research shows us that um, it's more likely to see that those students drop out. Um, mm -hmm. in high school. Um, now, the best time to retain students is in early grades. You know, we're talking about pre-K and kindergarten. Um, so I'm a little bit confused as to why we have a no retention policy in kindergarten Especially, you know, this is the time when our students are developing their early literacy skills and their early numeracy skills. Um, you would expect that this would be the best place, the best time uh, to retain students who be in kindergarten. And in fact, you could think like if we're concerned about creating too many kids in kindergarten, right? Because we have an entering kindergarten group coming in right. next year. And if we have all the other students, a lot of our students retained in kindergarten, we create a bit of a bubble. And if that's what we're concerned about, we should consider using the federal relief dollars to help right. ease that bubble. Um, but Jill, really, th there's a more nuanced conversation here. I mean, this is really should be tailored to each individual student. You know, the research says students with a disability shouldn't be retained. In fact, they will always need some specialized instruction. They should continue on. Students who are young in a grade, you know, chronologically, you may, you may think about retaining versus students who are chronologically older. Students who are social emotionally more immature for their grade you may consider retaining versus students who are more mature for their grade level, right? There's all these considerations to make on individual. There's like a matrix of considerations yeah. that go into whether or not you retain a child. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The whole goal of retention, Jill, is that when you retain a student for a year, that the following year, that student is at grade level or above grade level and will need no further intervention in their educational career. And so it's interesting. You know, what, what I don't, I, what I, another piece of this puzzle that I don't completely comprehend is later in the meeting, they talk about how there's 52,000 and change in terms of the number of students that they're expecting next year. So that's like significantly lower than the 54,000 plus kids who were in the district two years ago. And yet the budget is the same, plus you have $400 million of money coming in from the federal government. And so it would seem like if we need to solve for some things that were caused by the pandemic, this is this is the time to do it because you can spend your way through solving the problem. And it sounds like from what you're saying, if you do that at the very early years, you maybe can solve the problem in one year. 
Well, right. I mean, certainly we should consider that we have space and we have resources um, to meet the needs of our students. Um, I, I just would, I would um, caution us that this, this is a really an individual conversation or, or decision for each parent, teacher, and school leader about their student. Um, and we shouldn't close any doors here. Um, so I, again, I'm, I am uh, I'm confused by the school district's guidance that there is no good um, uh, decision. Um, that's, what's, that's what's being communicated. Um, and that there's a unilateral policy that retention in kindergarten should, should not happen, even though that may be the best place uh, for a student to be retained. Okay, so moving on, the superintendent then provided a summary of the BSAC crisis in BPS, which also ended up in the news last night. You may have seen it in the Globe this morning. We are likely to hear much more about this over the coming months. The superintendent said that BPS is executing all of the recommendations from the report that it commissioned. And we'll hear later in the evening from students and parents who do not think that enough is being done. So the committee members then had several questions about the superintendent's report. Here is Mrs. Robinson, who is asking about retention and teaching children who had a disrupted experience during the 2021 school year. So my question is, are, are teachers being counseled or asked to think about meeting kids where they're at in terms of um, going back to school next year, knowing what kids have not received. I think particularly about kindergarten kids who've not had, who had a disrupted preschool year and then a disrupted kindergarten year going directly into first grade. Are teachers expecting first grade behavior or will they work where the students are coming from to develop them to get to that first grade social interaction behavior, et cetera? Because my other fear on the other side is students being penalized for what they don't bring because of what they have experienced. If we're not setting a tone of, we, we'll start where you're at. And then the superintendent offers this response. Yeah, I think, you know, you need a little of both. You know, you yeah. always want to <clears throat> keep your expectations high, but you also want to meet students where they are. And so um, that's the great thing about a master teacher is that they know how to differentiate for students who have differing needs within their classroom and to meet their needs. You know, if they have social emotional needs that um, are needing attention one day or whether they have academic needs. Fortunately, this year we'll have additional resources to support teachers in their professional development prior to school start, as well as during the school year and additional staff. In our budget, we added 90 social workers. We added 80 uh, plus family liaisons. Schools will be adding additional supports uh, within the schools. Um, so our teachers are very in tune with the trauma that we have all just gone through, both the adults and the students, and are very much going to take their time with students upon their return. We're hoping that the summer school will allow for a little transition to phase students in to get them used to and, uh, and accustomed. So that's why we're really trying to push parents to think very seriously about summer activities for their children that are more formalized. And then, the school committee chair, Alex Oliver Davila, suggests that there is a strong need to then better understand enrollment in summer activities and programs. 
I, you know, I would like to see every school be able to say what is the plan for every student. There's so many programs, you know, happening virtually and in person. So Jill, I thought this question from Ms. Robinson to begin with was, was really a great question. Um, yeah. You know, she's saying, okay, if we have a policy, she's talking about early, early um, grades again, now K-1, K-2, and we have a policy of not retaining students in K-2, so we're going to move all the students along into grade one, will teachers be prepared to teach students at any level uh, in grade one? Mm-hmm. And um, the superintendent responded that, you know, there are, uh, there'll be more adults, there'll be more resources. Um, I think this is really important to watch and to make sure that, we're keeping track of the data here and ensuring that all students' needs are being met and that we're not, quite frankly, overtaxing individual teachers by mm. putting 22 kids into a classroom you know, at early K-2 level and others may be at mid-grade one level. Um, that's right. quite a range for a first grade teacher to ensure that our students are all reading, uh, writing, and doing basic mathematics in first grade. Um, also, this exchange brought up um, something that's really important around summer school. You know, this question, Jill, has been asked around, um, uh, I think, since February, where the district said, hey, we're going to make sure that 100% of our students have a plan for summer. That was a big announcement um, mm. months ago. And, you know, we've been harping on this at every podcast saying, um, how many students have signed up? I want to be clear, Jill, that um, I was asked multiple times by my kids' school about my three kids, they said, you know, what is your, what are you doing for the summer? So I've entered my information into a survey. I know the district has data on, on how many parents have responded to that survey, because this is a district-wide survey, and how many kids are engaged in the summer, are planning to be engaged in a summer program. Quite, quite simply, that could be released at school committee. I mean, now yeah. we're in June almost. Uh, summer school experiences are happening in four weeks, this grand promise and this big com- this big announcement that we're gonna have 100% of kids in summer programming this summer, um, it's kind of fizzled out over the months. We had three school committee members ask about this last night and there was no data presented and no plan presented. Jill, I have to take a moment to, to sort of um, go back to Hardin Coleman's, Coleman's comments because it, it seems like the superintendent is kind of in charge of everything at this point. And in fact, if you remember, Jill, um, the superintendent made a change in the chief academic officer just a couple of meetings ago. Right. And she put an interim chief academic officer in place. That, that chief academic officer has since left the district. So it, there is no chief academic officer. That's only a couple of weeks on the job then. Only a couple of weeks on the job, right? right. So, so we essentially, we have summer programming. We have sort of returning to normalcy or returning to school with students yeah. who may not be at grade level. We have these reten- this, this question of retention and academic supports for students. We have this $400 million of recovery money that's coming in without a chief academic officer. And we're gonna hear about a new grading policy coming up um, yeah. without a chief academic officer. So all of this seems to fall upon the superintendent. And it seems like the superintendent is spending you know, a significant amount of time and doing a, a, a you know, good job of trying to manage everything here. And she's managing a BSAC crisis. Right. And literally receiving text messages from students during the meeting and trying to respond to them about how they can testify at the meeting. I mean, we can't expect a superintendent to manage everything. We have to expect a superintendent to have to build a great team and to entrust that team to lead these major efforts of the district. Well, we have to expect that. But school committee's job is to insist on that. Right. That that she demonstrate leadership by putting experts in place so that 
all of these different things that, you know, strategically are directionally correct actually get implemented. Exactly. So I, I would expect, Jill, when, when the superintendent is asked about um, what happens academically um, for students who may be behind or, or summer school or any of these things, that the chief academic officer or somebody get yeah. on the, the, the school committee meeting and have clear answers. Um, rather than putting the, right, well, rather than put the superintendent in a position where she has to, you know, say I don't know or 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 um, or tr try to provide an answer um, when she has so many other things that she needs to be paying attention to. Right, but to be clear, that it, it is her role to make sure that those positions are filled. It's school committee's role to make sure that she that's that that she's meeting those goals and objectives of having a solid team underneath her who can execute on all of these things. This was the clear part of her evaluation, her goals from the school committee at her last evaluation were to hold her accountable for building a team. Yeah. So we then um, moved on to public comment last night where we heard from both the Horseman School principal. It's been a long and exhausting journey for our community to finally be here tonight and respectfully ask that you please vote yes for the Horseman MSBA funds application. I urge you to vote yes. This is a hopeful moment and there is, there is a bit of celebration in our hearts. So I'm sorry for getting emotional. <laughs> um, just today, our Build HMS committee met with the Build BPS team again. And the MSBA process we have learned is a lengthy process and we have no time to waste. I believe we have wasted too much time, but here we are. And as you know, and according to current, current plans, we are scheduled to vacate the building we occupy by June of 2022. We are concerned with the current timeline and the fact that an appropriate swing space location has not been identified yet. Our build HMS team is made up of experts in racing and educating deaf and hard of hearing children. And we together with the district must find a suitable temporary home for the school. Please work with us to find our next home as soon as possible. You know, Ross, we've been talking about this lately in our podcast, and it's really incredible to hear the tone and tenor of this conversation, meaning we've been talking about the Horace Mann School and where, where they're going to end up. You have a leader of the school who is a part of the district asking the district, uh, you know, testifying to the district, asking the district to please partner with itself. She's a part of them. And she has to do this by testifying. And she's asking for the district to bring experts into the conversation in the same way that the school has brought experts into the conversation to find a decent short term. They're going to lose their school shortly and they don't know where they're going. So a decent short-term and a decent longer-term solution. They, you know, school committee is going to build a new school, but it looks like it's seven years out. So I mean, this is a critically important situation that we hear about during public testimony. We also heard from both a parent on the topic of the BSAC crisis. Here, here she is. The report release confirms what many of us have learned that for many years, students in BSAC were manipulated into participating in an unlicensed toxic therapeutic program in the basement of the director of Youth on Board's home. Students were cajoled into attending these sessions through promises of free food and Uber rides, along with inappropriate pressure from the ED. 
disturbing group therapy sessions were held without licensed mental health professionals, leaving young people exploited, vulnerable, and unsure how to relate to one another after leaving that space. The long-term impact on the students and young adult mentors who participated in this unlicensed nightmare will continue long after this report becomes old news and BPS has moved on to its next issue. It's the young people who are left traumatized with issues around trust. The Globe article coming out tomorrow makes very clear that what we've heard in this report is only the tip of the iceberg and has gone on for a very long time. Ultimately, BPS needs to be held accountable for this travesty. I don't have an answer for what that looks like or how you can make these young people whole, but I do have a concern about the plan moving forward. Russ, this parent, as well as the principal of the Horace Mann, both had trouble getting through their public comments. Their, their passion and their perception that the district is not doing enough, not doing their job, really, brought them to tears, made them breathless. It was a difficult dynamic for me to watch, but it signals that they are not feeling well supported. So then we moved on and there's this student, one of the students who testified last night, among others, spoke further about the BSAC crisis. These past few months have been a whirlwind to say the least. And I have tried to stay away from the media because this has been very difficult time mentally. But after reading the investigation and global reports, it is time to break my silence. This isn't something that comes out of the blue. Brenda Casillas is saying she never knew about RC, but was present, but it was presented to many BPS officials over time. The whole investigation was just a facade to give BPS time to cover themselves. And, and Jill, the student uh, went on to name several people associated with BPS who she, she perceived as being complicit in this crisis with BSAC. And in fact, went on to say that if they were if they were implicated, you know, the district would be implicated, and and the district has been careful not to implicate itself um, in this in this crisis, but it, but in fact, just um, put it on the nonprofit partner who was working with um, mm. with the BSEC members. All of this is to say again that the details are being left behind, and that the district is suffering because there's not enough experts in place to manage a whole series of issues that are part of a large urban school district that needs to be managed better. So the meeting then transitioned to the presentations for the evening. The first presentation was from SPEDPAC leadership. Right. So Jill, the um, chairs of the, of the Special Education Parent Advisory Council, which is a, a group in Boston, but also is requirement in districts across the state, summarized a lot of the great work that they're doing to collaborate with the district. This, this group actually has hundreds of parents that are attending meetings on a regular basis, and they're pushing really hard for BPS to take action. They want BPS to take action on ensuring that IEP meetings are meeting the needs of families, action on getting students compensatory services, you know, especially during the pandemic when so many students were not getting uh, special education services. Mm. They want action on getting initial testing set up um, because there's a huge backlog of initial testing that needs to get done. And they really want action on ensuring students are educated in an appropriate setting. Jill, almost 25% of students in Boston Public Schools receive some, some form of special education services. Uh, Roxy Harvey summarizes what should happen next. So we're hoping this is something that is going to be implemented because we've talked about it and it's something that um, everyone's agreed that should be done. But the next part of accountability is getting it done. We also, that, and that goes back to the communication and the transparency. So if we say we're going to do something or if, you know, BPS says they're going to do something, our families will trust you when you do it. 
we've heard a lot of words uh, of diff- on different topics, but we, it's the action point right now where we're looking to see the change, the culture change. We have to improve and follow through, uh, keeping our families informed about changes, new programming, and answering their questions while also doing more than saying our voices will be listened to. Good points. So then the meeting moved to a presentation about a district-wide unified set of protocols for grading. Ross, it seems to make sense that there would be a consistent grading policy between each school and each grade level, especially if, you know, we're hearing in the exam school committee meetings that, that you know, potentially exam schools are going to rely heavily on grading for admissions. And they did that this year, of course. So is this Having unified grading, consistent grading strategies across schools and districts, is this a new idea? No, 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 Jill. No, no. We've, um, I mean, in fact, when I was a teacher in Boston Public Schools, um, mm-hmm. we had a chief academic officer who, um, he, he, he was terrific. He brought all the teachers together at every grade level in different content areas. The teachers created learning guides. You know, they created common tasks, common assessments, including what I remember very clearly was common writing assessments. We had common writing assessments across um, every grade level and content area. um, And we had common rubrics that were developed by teachers and school leaders and content experts. And we all were doing the same thing, right? We were all essentially working together on understanding what our common expectations should be between classrooms in a school and between schools across the district. And this really brought us together, I would say, on a common approach on, on how to teach. So this is not not new, but it, it takes time and effort to rebuild that because we, we've lost that practice about a decade ago in our school system. So, you know, this, this notion that comp, of competency-based grading or mastery grading and providing feedback to students on their work are all really great things, Jill. The challenge is implementation. We have to be engaged, you know, in, in our current grading system. We have to engage all of our teachers, all of our school leaders and our parents to make sure that we can create this change over time. And it's gonna take a clear implementation plan and engagement strategy of educators that serve our students every day. The plan, this plan that was put forward last night is a correct vision. Mm -hmm. Now it'd be good to know about how it will be implemented. And without a chief academic academic officer, without a plan, I wonder if the committee will follow up and hold the district accountable for further details on implementation. Well, right. So it's a good question. And there was, you know, lots of back and forth where uh, with the school committee members and the presenters, and there were many questions about implementation, just as you're talking about, um, of a unified grading policy, which, you know, maybe did not receive detailed or thorough enough answers because, or any answers at all, in some cases, because school committee kept asking more questions. Um, we summarize it here when Ms. Robinson asks this question about how this policy will actually get operationalized. You know, I love this idea of moving toward a system that, at least on paper, is more equitable um, in terms of what it means. The question is, how do you get the adults, parents, and educators to shift their thinking um, to come up with a new way of looking at grades. I would think if this is done right, we would see a decrease in um, dropouts and other things because students would have new ways of getting through with their work and understanding what that work, what the value is of to them around the accomplishment. 
And, but I really feel that, you know, I, I, you know, as I think about, you know, the exam school issues and we've got great schools that are giving A pluses and people complaining that my kid goes to, you know, advanced work and that work is harder than the other work. And so the issue is, you know, how do we get to a place where it's clear what an A equals and it won't be refuted in three other places. And she went on to say, but in, in addition to the grade on the content and the mastery, how do, how will you give students feedback about their, 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 their abilities to organize, to get the work done on time, those kinds of things, because those are equally important in success. Yeah, so that, that's a strong case for, for competency-based grading, right? Like the competency right. of, of, of uh, professional practices or, or learning practices, right? You can say, for mastery, you learn 90% of the material to your grade for mastery is a, is a nine, but you're 90, uh, but your grade for um, professional habits uh, is lower because you were often late and you um, didn't turn assignments in on time. But that is separate from your grade for mastery. I think that we can develop systems to do that. Mm -hmm. And will we also develop the systems to make sure that we are teaching students those skills? I, we, we definitely, like, yeah, we definitely can do that. Right. I mean, I, I, I've seen it that there's expectation of skills that kids would have, but nowhere you look back in the curriculum where they ever taught. And some people get it, you know, immediately others really need a process. So great. Thank you. All in all, it sounds like there is still, like you're saying, Ross, much work to do before there is a plan for a universal grading policy that school committee could actually put up for a vote. It all goes back to uh, Dr. Coleman's opening words, Jill. You know, this, this is, we need a team to ensure that we have an implementation plan, um, strong implementation plan. Um, you know, Jill, the, I, I want to summarize a couple other things um, that happened last night. Uh, first, uh, there was a vote to rename the library at the, at the Hale School in Roxbury after a beloved educator, George Cox. Um, I had the privilege of working with George when I was in Boston Public Schools, and he truly was an amazing educator. He cared deeply about every student, every person who worked in BPS, and he had a quietness about him, but, but that quietness didn't get in the way of his you know, ferocity for making sure that every student was served well in our school system. After George's retirement, Jill, he tutored kids every day, five days a week, five hours a day at the Hale. Um, he never did anything with fanfare. He, this, George was, was amazing example of what an educator should be. So that was, that vote was passed and it's, it's great to have his legacy in BPS. Um, now the, the, there was also a number of votes on facilities. Uh, we won't get into the details, but new boilers are coming, uh, which are very exciting. Uh, some new windows. Uh, I know we talk about windows a lot, um, but yes, new windows are coming in some buildings and the Horace Mann School got voted in to put an application forward to the Mass School Building Authority. And this will be a long one, Jill. You know, you know there's a process here and most likely a new Horace Mann will be built in about, you know, five to seven years. Right. So there's a huge amount of work to do and we're headed into the superintendent's review, Ross. So how should school committee members be thinking about all of this? Well, Jill, for, first, you know, I would say that the school committee members should really be collecting data from um, 
you know, from, from members of the school community, um, from the district community about the superintendent's performance and ensure that, that um, their, their rating is reflective of how people are experiencing the leadership in the Boston Public Schools. Hmm. But let's just be clear. We got a lot on our plate. A superintendent has put forward a number of proposals, which we think are directionally correct. Uh, a new grading policy, mass core implementation. We'll see you know, some sort of new exam school policy will be coming up in the next few weeks. The system is moving to a whole model of K-6 schools to se- and 7-12 schools and then moving away from any middle school model. They're implementing early college and they're thinking about investing $400 million of federal relief funds. Which, by the way, we, we went through an entire meeting, again, with no discussion on how the $400 million will be spent to solve so many of the operational problems that were highlighted in this meeting. Right. The, right. You know, it, it is kind of it is kind of strange not to hear how resources will be spent to implement a number of initiatives that need to be dealt with in the next few next few years. Yeah. But really, the question, Jill, is how will the superintendent herself do all these things? You know, foreshadowing you know her evaluation coming up and understanding where the committee was pushing the superintendent at our last evaluation to make sure she's building a team that can implement a, a number of her strategic vision strategies. You know, how, how do they review her as, as this comes up? You know, and, and how is she gonna build an organization to lead all of this important work? Uh, Hardin Coleman seems to be onto something when he talks about, you know, nobody can run a billion dollar organization by themselves and do it well. My question is how and will the school committee ultimately handle this issue of a lack of appropriate organization to run a district that serves over 50,000 students every day? Uh, and that is the question I'm left with at, at this meeting. So there are um, a number of questions. And here are some of the questions that we think are worth asking. What further steps will the district take to ensure that the current and former students of BSAC are okay? How will the district manage BSAC rather than outsource it in the future? Right, and, and what is the plan for the summer? The district promised months ago to that we would know a plan for every student in BPS. Do we have a plan for every student in BPS? Where will the Horace Mann students attend school until their new school is built? And Jill, how many teachers have been hired for next year? How many vacancies remain? We hear that this is an issue uh, around the state, around finding Mm -hmm. enough educators to fill positions. It would be good to have an update on that for next year. Yeah, and alongside that, what are the updated enrollment projections for next year based on the first round of student assignments? And Jill, listening um, every Tuesday and Friday to the exam school task force, it, it, you know, it, it, it's unclear when we're going to have a draft policy out of that committee. So it would be great to have an update on a timeline for when the exam school task force will have a draft policy. Yeah, because it's kind of, I mean, we're getting close. We got the summer and then we're back into applications in the fall. Okay for the next year. And then, and then of course, the question that just still looms on our minds, what is happening with our graduating students from Boston Public Schools? How many of them are attending college? If they aren't going to college, what are they doing next? Does the district have any of this data? And of course, Jill, you know, there are ways to engage and get involved. We, we propose that, that folks who are interested in advocating advocate to their city council. The city councilors are, are often briefed by the superintendent and her team on policy decisions, and they should be brought into conversations to advocate for what you think should be happening in Boston Public Schools. 
Also, every, everybody should be advocating for a clear strategy on how the influx of federal recovery money will be spent for long-term positive change for our, our, our students. So please attend, consider attending a commission meeting. The dates will be posted in our blog. And lastly, attend an exam school task force meeting as they'll soon be recommending a policy, we think, to the school committee. These meetings are every Tuesday and Friday. And that is what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.